chapter 16. Send couriers to those who rule in the earth, from Selah in the desert to the mountain of the daughter of Zion. Like fluttering birds forced out of the nest, so are Moab's women at the fords of Arnon. Provide a solution, they say. Judge our case. Overshadow us at high noon as though it were night. Shelter those dispossessed. Betray not the refugees. Let the exiles of Moab dwell with you. Be a refuge to them from the aggressors. So here are the people of Moab and other nations looking to someone else to solve their problems. Problems that they've brought upon themselves, the consequence of their own actions. Now they're reduced to a state of being refugees or exiles. And they say, judge our case, overshadow us at high noon as though it were night. You see that they're into deception. They want someone to cover their sins, as it were. Who do they send couriers to or messengers for help? From Selah in the desert where they live to the mountain of the daughter of Zion or the nation of the daughter of Zion or the people of Zion. The mountain of the daughter of Zion is here paralleled with those who rule in the earth so that those who rule in the earth are the people of Zion at that point in time. So one group, the group that were oppressive before, now look to those whom they oppressed and who are in a situation of strength for help. It's kind of hypocritical. Verse 4, When oppressors are no more and violence has ceased, and tyrants are destroyed from the earth, then in loving kindness shall a throne be set up in the abode of David, and in faithfulness a judge sit on it who will maintain justice and expedite righteousness. So yes, there is help, but in the Lord's way. The Moabites are seeking refuge from the aggressors, namely the Assyrians. Isaiah continues and calls them the oppressors and the violent. But the people of Moab themselves were oppressive and violent and tyrannical to others. Otherwise, they wouldn't be suffering these things. The Lord would have delivered them. And so, you're looking forward to a millennial kind of peace when there will be no more aggressors or oppressors or violence or tyrants of any kind, whether they're Assyrians or Moabites or anybody else. Then in loving kindness, loving kindness is a covenant term. In Hebrew, it's chesed, and it means faithfulness to the covenant. So the Lord, being faithful to the covenant that he has made with his people, sets up a throne in the abode of David, or the promised land, and in faithfulness a judge sit on it. So he'll appoint a judge who will maintain justice and expedite righteousness. Not like now. Now people have been faithless and unrighteous, and as a result these calamities are coming upon them. So, as part of the reversal of circumstances between the righteous and the wicked, the Lord makes an end of the oppressors and now establishes the righteous with a righteous leader over them. The judge who sits on the throne is both the Lord himself, who judges in the book of Isaiah, and also his servant, a descendant of David, who is a foreigner of Christ's or the Lord's coming to rule in the earth. In the book of Zechariah, the Lord and his servant both sit upon one throne. Now rhetorically, we can identify the Lord and his servant as the ones who judge in the book of Isaiah, because that's the way the word is used. It refers to them in other parts of the book of Isaiah. That's how we know who the judge is. 
Also, faithfulness and righteousness are two terms used in connection with the Lord's servant. The Lord is faithful and righteous, and his servant personifies those attributes. He is righteousness personified and faithfulness personified. So the real answer to Moab's problem is not a temporary shelter for the refugees, because their mindset will be just to continue the way they are, but actually to overturn the situation and make an end of oppressors and oppression and establish justice and righteousness. Verse 6, we have heard of the glories of Moab, of its excessive pride and its boasting, of its outbursts of false propaganda. This was the real thinking of Moab. This was their real behavior that led up to this covenant curse. They were aggressive in very negative sense, putting others down and building themselves up. False slogans. For this shall the Moabites be made to lament, and all have cause to bewail Moab. They shall groan at the ruin of Kir Harasid and other dejection. Kir is one of the two cities that is mentioned in the beginning, verse 1, chapter 15. For the vineyards of Heshbon shall wither, the ruling nations will smite Sibma's vines, its runner vines reach Yazer, trailing through the desert, its branches spread abroad across the sea. So this is not just a nation that's one entity, a single entity somewhere located in a particular place, but it's actually a conglomerate. It's actually a nation that has outposts and branches out in other areas of the world, even across the sea. Using the idea of branches, spreading branches or vines as a metaphor Therefore I will mourn as Yazer mourns for the vines of Sibma. I will water you with my tears, O Cheshbon and Elieleh, when your shouts of cheer over the summer fruit and harvest are stilled. Yes, there is the literal sense that the vines and the summer fruit and the trees will be destroyed and there will be no harvest like there usually is, but also that calamity has overtaken those who are part of the larger entity that constitutes Moab, or wherever they have presence in the world. The joyful festivity will be gone from the orchards. No shouts of delight shall sound in the vineyards. The wine treaders will tread no wine in the presses. The vintage shout I will bring to an end. It's to show that those who were joyful and who had everything going for them, really, that all of that comes to silence. When you see this, how joy is turned to gloom, you see when you read about the righteous or the elect, the people of Zion, that their gloom is turned to joy at the same time, at the same time that this reversal takes place. It's simultaneous for both the wicked and the righteous. So this phenomenon here doesn't stand alone. It has a counterpart in Zion's silence and gloom and oppression turning to joy. In my book, I've been drawing the comparison between fairy tales and the book of Isaiah. This is like the ugly stepsisters gloating over Cinderella and her plight and just heaping oppressions upon her, making her do all the chores. And she just kind of takes it in. Then in the end, they are the ones who lose out. They miss out. And her gloom is turned to joy. That's kind of how it works with the woman Zion. There's many, many parallels there between the woman Zion and the heroine of the story, whether she's Cinderella or Snow White or whoever it is. 
those uh, fairy tales capture that archetype of the righteous heroine. My breast will vibrate like a harp from Moab, my inmost being for Kir Kharosit. This is the prophet speaking. He is not vindictive about the situation. He recognizes that it is a covenant curse that is a result of wickedness, but he's not gloating over Moab's demise, as the Moabites would have gloated over Israel's or Zion's demise. He's not like that. He actually feels for them and wish he could do something about it. For when the Moabites weary themselves with petitioning on the hill shrines and enter their sanctuaries to pray, it shall be to no avail. And again, when you read this, you don't read it as an isolated verse. Later on, it starts talking about the Lord's people. When they pray, the Lord hears them. Even as they're speaking, he hears them. So that you see the contrast between this passage and passages like that. On the other hand, you also read passages, as we did in chapter 1, where people pray at length and with outstretched arms, and the Lord doesn't hear them, because they're in the same case as the Moabites. He doesn't hear the prayers of the wicked and of the righteous. He doesn't hear the prayers of hypocrites. These things the Lord spoke hitherto about Moab. But now the Lord has said, within three years, as the term of Elise, Moab's glory shall become ignominy, For all its large populace, there shall be very few left and those of no account. So among these people, there is really no righteous remnant. There will be a few left, perhaps left meaning a remnant, but not of any consequence. The real remnant that survives into the millennial time are the righteous of the Lord's people, who come out of Babylon, who come out of all these nations. They've already been separated out so that those who survive of these nations are not the righteous people. This lease of three years is now made specific. Before this, the prophets prophesied against the nations and against the wicked of Israel, against the whole Babylon conglomerate. But now there comes a time when there's kind of a countdown. The prophet announces at this time that there will be three more years. And if they don't get their act together by then, then the time of judgment will come upon them. A three-year lease of time. And not just for Moab, but for the whole Babylon composite. For the whole world, everything that constitutes Babylon, everything that is not Zion, is Babylon. So for that whole group, there is a three-year countdown. They have the chance at that time to repent and to be numbered with the people of Israel, to enter the covenant that the Lord has made, become part of his covenant people, or to suffer these consequences of wickedness. Their glory shall become ignominy. That's part of the reversal of circumstances between the righteous and the wicked. The righteous suffer ignominy now, as the Lord's servant does, as the Lord himself does, before they are exalted, before they attain glory. But their glory, like the king of Assyria's glory, becomes ignominy. They who exalted themselves become humiliated. And we saw also that that happens to the wicked of the Lord's people earlier. Women of Zion in particular were mentioned in that respect, who were dolling themselves up and they end up ignominiously deprived in a state of destitution. For all this large populace, there shall be very few of them. Huge populations of the world will be decimated. And who does that? The king of Assyria, as we saw earlier. 
His purpose shall be to annihilate and to exterminate nations, not a few, it says. And this is one of them.